Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here is the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Bruce Gilley to the program to discuss his remarkable new book, The Case for Colonialism. Dr. Gilley earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Toronto and then was a Commonwealth Scholar while earning his Master of Philosophy at Oxford and later was a Woodrow Wilson Scholar at Princeton where he got his doctorate. Bruce Gilley is an author, an editor, and a professor of political science at Portland State University. Welcome to Core Principles, Dr. Gilley. How are you doing? Hi, I'm uh, Greg Clay. Well, you are unquestionably a true expert on colonialism, based in part on some of your life experiences, uh, which you talk about in the book, uh, your time in Hong Kong, as well as on your scholarly research. But making the case for colonialism is necessarily a hard sell. And so to start our conversation, uh, I want all of our listeners to be on the same page uh, that I was able to get on by reading your book and ask you to define colonialism in the specific context that you use it in your book. And to set up that definition, I'm going to take the likely perspective of our listeners and ask you this which was the first question that entered my mind when I looked at the title of your book. Since the United States was founded by people who wanted to escape British colonialism, how can we Americans be expected to accept your case for colonialism? Yeah, great question. Um, So colonialism or imperialism is another word that's sometimes used interchangeably with it. Um, It's simply when a country with its own governance system um, decides to extend that governance system to another area, um, invariably to another area where there's not a rival governance system. Of course, sometimes you do have, uh, you know, invasion and occupation of settled political systems. But most of the colonialism we're talking about, which is, you know, sort of 17th through the 20th century, was uh, situations where um, Western countries just my focus is on Western colonialism, um, you know, essentially went across the world to Africa, the Middle East, um, Latin America had been colonized by the Spanish and Portuguese earlier, um, and even to Asia, and essentially set up what were replicas of their liberal governance systems with human rights, with property rights, with market economies, with representative government, um, and the like. And You know, that's essentially what colonialism is. The United States is no different in the sense that um, the uh, British state um, extended its British governance system over the parts of the North North American continent where uh, the various settlers from first Britain and then Ireland and then the rest of Europe had come, uh, worked out a modus vivendi with, um, you know, the French in North America and essentially were able to facilitate the settlement and establishment of governance institutions, property institutions, uh, the rule of law, uh, all those good things that uh, are what then made the North American continent, both Canada and the United States, as successor states to British colonialism, uh, extremely desirable places to live. And then let's like round the circle out that, that absent the role of the British state in North America, the pilgrims and others would not have stood a chance. So 
there were in the late stages of British colonial rule, and they existed in all places as places started to find their feet and feel their oats and wanting to be more independent of the British state. Um, this is a kind of late stage fraternal debate as opposed to a break from the British colonial state. The United States is a classic example of the benefits of colonialism. Outstanding. And I hope, listeners, uh, you you grasp the subtleties and the truth in that in that answer. And our founders uh, were most interested in that once they had had the successes that they had been able to have, in part because of the, the British colonialism, they no longer wanted to be subject to a crown across the ocean. They wanted to set up a republic and representative government here. Well, my general outline for our discussion on your new book, The Case for Colonialism, is going to be to ask you to offer some specific elements of the case, and I'll prompt them by quoting a few observations you make in your book, and then we're going to dive deeper into one especially contentious subtopic. And uh, later, I think we'll have time, I want to look at the response and the reactions you received for making this case, but we'll get to that uh, later if we have time. So we're going to begin near the end of your book where you say this, quote, given its positive effects in transforming the lives of China's billions, Hong Kong alone is sufficient to make the case for colonialism, end quote. Now, would you please elaborate on that, Dr. Gilley? Well, um, there's a funny thing when you look at colonialism is, uh, you know, if you, if you just look at, if you start counting heads, you know, number of people affected, then really there's only two places in the world where the debate needs to be held. One is about colonialism in India, and one is about uh, colonialism or the colonial influence on China. Now, we can talk about India later. Um, I believe the case for colonialism is very strong in India. China is less clear because, of course, China was never colonized. There were small little colonial ports uh, on the on the coast of China, but for the most part, it was never colonized. It remained independent of Western colonialism. But Hong Kong, which, of course, was the British colony set up in the 1840s and then expanded in the 1890s, um, ended up having a colonial-like influence on China because it was essentially a example of what a market economy and what wide spread rule of law and social and economic and even political freedoms could do. And China learned from Hong Kong. And um, Paul Romer, who's the University of Chicago economist and served on the World Bank as their chief economist for a while, said that, uh, you know, if, if, if Hong Kong is responsible for China's economic growth and miracle and, and you know, relative stability, um, then that's a pretty huge contribution of colonialism in terms of global history. And uh, his argument is that's sufficient, actually, to make the case for colonialism is that one impact just because of the, the amount of people affected in China. Well, I'll encourage our listeners to buy and read your book, The Case for Colonialism, so they can learn more about India, particularly, as you mentioned. But now, as we approach what many are going to consider the most daunting challenge to your thesis, I want to shift focus from Asia to Africa. And to begin with, regarding Africa, uh, would you please share with our listeners a little bit about who Chenua Achebe was and how he influenced you and many others? Chinua Achebe is a, was a Nigerian novelist. He's best known for his very thin, uh, I would call it a novella rather than a novel, called Things Fall Apart. Uh, it's the kind of book that you may have read in high school. 
which is really about the um, kind of dizzying impact of modern Western life upon uh, a small tribe in British colonial Nigeria. Um, and when Achebe wrote that book, he was he was really borrowing upon, uh, you know, the uh, poem by by William Yeats called, you know, in which he says the center cannot hold things fall apart. And Yeats was actually talking about how his native Wales had been affected by modernization. Yeats didn't see it as a bad thing. He just thought it's kind of, you know, part of the, the costs of, of modernity. And that's how Achebe saw it. But Achebe was later then treated as this great anti-colonial writer. And um, when he came to his last book just before he died in 2006, he, he really came forward and said, look, I, I've never been anti-colonial. I always thought the British did a great job in Nigeria. Um, I'm not saying that they didn't eventually have to leave and there wasn't downsides as well as upsides, but, you know, he said, let's face it, if there was no British colonialism, there would be no Nigeria. And that was really the first time where I started to say, you know, someone needs to go back and rewrite this history because it's been so distorted for the last 50 years. Yes, that poem you referred to by William Butler Yeats is called The Second Coming, and I've actually read it on this program. Listeners, it is worth studying. Now, when we think about European colonialism as it relates to Africa, the specter of slavery is looming, and you don't shy away from that topic. In fact, Dr. Bruce Gilley, you give a title to one of your chapters in your book, The Case for Colonialism, called the good fortune of being enslaved in America. Now, listeners, take note, all of you and I and Dr. Gilly are in complete agreement about the fact that enslaving any other human being is wrong. That's always true. Our discussion of this topic will not contradict that important truth. Dr. Bruce Gilly, I and others on this program have made the historical case that America is, and I would say has been since its founding, one of the most anti-slavery nations in the history of the world. And you observe this quote, the American founding came before there was a widespread view of slavery being inconsistent with liberal equality, even though the founding fathers recognized at the start that the two were in conflict. All men are created equal of 1776 was recognized as a promise that would bind end quote. What would you have our listeners understand about slavery in the context of your making the case for colonialism? Well, um, first of all, of course, slavery was uh, existed long before uh, the Europeans got involved in the transatlantic slave trade. In fact, to the extent that Europe was at all affected by the African and Arab slave trades, which have been going on for centuries, as well as even the slave trades in Central America. Uh, it was as slaves themselves, right? I mean, the Danube was full of slave markets where you could buy white slaves. Um, and as economic fortunes in Europe rose, Europe became a slave-owning and trading area rather than a place where slaves were plundered from. Um, this is just world history and uh, didn't make the Europeans any better or worse than any other part of the world where slavery had long been recognized uh, as a normal part of life and slaves as normal parts of households. And until about the mid-18th century, you know, 1750s, uh, there wasn't a lot of discussion about, you know, the evils of slavery. To the extent that an abolition movement then began to arise, it arose in Europe. Um, the abolitionists were the Dutch and the British, um, usually the Protestants. And so the United States is settled, you know, at a time when slavery is normal, 
And then as the founding comes with the American Revolution, you know, the, the, the movement against slavery is building. And so if you were so fortunate as to have been stuck in the United States as a transatlantic slave, as opposed to in South America, the good fortune was you, you landed in the, one of the most uh, kind of progressive and eventually emancipatory countries on planet Earth. That's, of course, why slaves fought very hard for the revolution. They also fought very hard for the Union Army. They fought um, for the United States. They thought of themselves as part of a great American story of human freedom and equality and the eventual realization of the promises of 1776. Um, and, of course, we now know today that if you're black in the United States, you are better than any other black person in the world. Uh, we don't see a huge number of people returning to Africa, despite, uh, you know, Jesse Jackson and the like always espousing that, because you're, you're lucky if your ancestors were enslaved. That doesn't mean it was right to enslave them, but it does mean that the result of that was you are in the most idealistic and, and liberal place in the world. Um, and also, we also forget that, you know, the British were because of their colonialism, were able to end the global slave trade, you know, in a matter of 20 or 30 years because of the supremacy of the British Navy. And, you know, the British lost a lot of lives. Thousands of naval lives were lost to the British Navy's campaign against the global slave trade in West Africa and in East Africa. You know, this was a huge contribution to the end of slavery, and it wouldn't have happened absent British colonialism. Yes, God bless William Wilberforce uh, for what he did leading some of that uh, effort. And uh, God bless the founders of the United States for being right there with them on the vanguard of ending slave trade. So uh, it's important history. Listeners, I hope that you don't let people uh, convince you that America is just a horrible, awful place because of our original sin of having slavery. Uh, the, the context in which that happened is we were one of the first to end it. We had nothing to do with starting it. And uh, as wrong as it is, and always was, it's still happening. And there are places people can go fight against slavery now if they choose. Well, we live now, Dr. Bruce Gilley, in an era of so-called cancel culture. And uh, in an era that you describe in your book as post-truth. Your writings about colonialism have met with some resentment as an understatement. So here's how you describe uh, part of the initial reaction, quote, on September 8, 2017, Third World Quarterly published my article, Dr. Bruce Gilley's article, The Case for Colonialism, through its online platform in anticipation of its inclusion in a hard copy edition at a later date. And within minutes of its appearance online, a great controversy arose on social media over the ensuing weeks. Half of that journal's editorial staff resigned in protest, and the editorial staff in London received credible death threats, end quote. So given that readers of Third World Quarterly are likely tending towards the scholarly, uh, why would they react so emotionally rather than simply debating the contentions that you had made? Well, this is, I think, what I'm referring to when I talk about post-truth. Uh, in the past, uh, the left... You know, which was which was coming out of the Marxist sociological tradition and the, and the historical tradition and the the empirical tradition um, thought that it could debate anyone because it could it could muster and marshal facts and arguments and and that its its viewpoint would would prevail and, uh, and this was kind of part of the, the left's understanding of 
history and whatnot, which was, you know, vigorous debate. Um, but the modern left decided that debate and facts were examples of white supremacy and racism. And so they abandoned the search for truth as a principal purpose of academics and research and debate and reading and decided that instead they needed to embrace what they saw as the ideologically correct position and then reject any challenges to it, um, much like a one-party state or a Leninist state would do in communist times. And so the problem with my article, I think, for a lot of the critics uh, in the academic world and, and even just on the general left, you know, wasn't wasn't any specific facts I marshaled. Indeed, none of them had anything to say specifically about the facts they marshaled. It was simply that you're not supposed to raise this question. Um, and no less than Noam Chomsky, you know, was one of the few people who came out and said, what are you people doing? You know, we're supposed to debate. We're supposed to believe in debate and truth. Um, but, you know, Noam Chomsky, these old Marxists, actually are the minority now on the left, which believes that debate and facts and arguments are just part of white supremacy culture that needs to be, you know, censored on social media and whatnot. That's so important. And the ramifications we see, if we'll pay attention, uh, in places like Berkeley, the free speech capital of the world, burning down parts of the city because they don't want anybody to hear from this Jewish guy named Charlie Kirk uh, a few years ago. Just that sort of stuff drives me crazy. Well, you are a professor of political science at Portland State University. So from your vantage point inside higher education, can you either confirm my perceptions or maybe set my mind at ease, because I perceive that universities and colleges are no longer bastions of academic freedom, no longer bastions of challenging thoughts and ideas, nor even of imparting the methods of pursuing objective reality. Am I missing something or am I seeing it right? I think you're seeing it right. Um, the question is, um, have we reached a peak and the movement is kind of burning itself out, both because it's been subject to so much external criticism, um, as well as and legislative action, at least in some places where Republican governments can make a difference. Uh, and, you know, it may also have sparked somewhat of an internal backlash. There are people on the left who are people of goodwill, who still believe in different viewpoints, who don't think having conservatives on campus is a outrage to good taste. Um, I, I can't say for sure. I, I guess I would say, um, yes, they are indoctrination mills right now. However, I also see some hope in younger students um, and even in younger faculty uh, who are kind of sick and tired of this generation of, you know, mostly 30, 40, 50 year olds, um, you know, the, the woke postmodernists who have run the show for the last 20 years. Um, and feel that it might be time for a change, at least to be more open to debates uh, on some issues. Now, you know, the Ivy League colleges don't inspire a lot of hope. But don't forget, those are sort of hothouse flower type of places. Uh, at my university, you know, my students are working class, first generation. They have no problems at all with debate on most issues. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, that sort of generation will be the one that writes the ship a little bit. That is encouraging, and that sort of anticipated uh, the last question I was going to ask you, but I do have one more in mind that is about applying some of the things that you've said to current, very current events. I observe that a lot of young folks have bought into the new leftist ideology, including really hardcore anti-colonialism, 
to the extremes, they can't discern the justification Israel has to defend against Hamas. And the leftists or the so-called woke crowd have decided Israel's a colonizer and oppressor, and therefore they've got to be wrong no matter what's happening, even if they're being attacked by a terrorist organization that has the stated purpose of killing every Jew on planet Earth. Now, how do we effectively reach young people to encourage more rational thinking and fact-based reasoning? Well, I think we need to just ask ourselves, get get away from the labels and say, you know, do, do you believe in a rule of law system? Do you believe in uh, equality of individuals? Do you believe in uh, protection of rights? Do you believe in representative government? And if the answer to those questions is yes, is that why would you ever not support the state of Israel, which is the only country in the Middle East which has even a shadow of those things? Um, and if your answer is, well, because they're Jewish, then you've kind of outed that you don't really believe in the equality of human beings. I do think that the, uh, the Hamas-Palestine thing has been caught up in this bigger kind of decolonized agenda. And, you know, my only differing point with most people is, you know, I do think it is correct to call Israel a settler colonial state. Uh, however long, whatever historical links there are between the Jewish people and the, and the Levant, um, you know, the modern origins of the state of Israel are the British mandate over Palestine, which was given to Britain by the League of Nations after World War I and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And the reason Britain got that mandate is because Britain was a colonial power based in Egypt with a wide control over that area. And the state of Israel was birthed by the British Empire um, as a successor state to the British League of Nations mandate, just as the United States was a successor state to a British colonial inheritance. Um, so I think the Israelis should embrace the fact that they should thank British colonialism for the state of Israel. And the Jews who moved to Israel were largely not people who had fled Palestine during the Ottoman era. There were people who were several generations removed from the Levant. Um, and that's why we should, you know, it's important to rethink our own history, too, and not be anti-colonial ourselves, because we end up tossing out a lot of our valued history under British colonialism when we try and repudiate that legacy. Of course, the, 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 the timing of independence and the method of independence is always a bit messy. It always was with the British Empire and others. But that doesn't repudiate the entire history and the valued inheritance that we received, that Israel received, and so many successful countries did. Yes, and all of that modern, relatively modern history also, from my perspective, uh, as one who believes in the Bible as God's word, does not invalidate or contradict the uh, the statements there in the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Uh, so all of that is consistent. It's really good and important to study history and to see how things in ancient history and modern history may line up. Uh, so all very important things. Well, uh, Thank you so much for being my guest on Core Principles, Dr. Bruce Gilley. God bless you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I enjoyed it very, very much. Core Principles podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information and please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.